Stay tuned. East Side Radio, 89.7 FM. Hello and welcome to Breaking Waves. Greetings from Radio Eastside. I'm Riley. And I'm John Mark. And we are bringing you our third and final episode on Travel Stories. Yes, we're back with some more tales of faraway places, peoples, cultures, and smells. First up, I'm going to talk about my second trip to England in 2005 at the age of 10 with my nana. Uh-huh. And John, what have you got for us today? Actually, I'm going to jump back a few years for my first uh, trip to Thailand when I went to Bangkok and then I went over to Japan. So I got to look at two different places. Aren't that far apart, but they are quite different. Culturally. Yeah. Well, should be fun. So, at this point in time, when I went to England, John, do you remember the London bombing? Um, now, that was on a bus. Uh, the trains. A train. Yeah, the tube stations, yeah. Right. Yes, I do remember some bombings. Yeah. Some terrorist That's right. activity. That was, so that was happening, like, just a week or so before we left and went to London and I remember my Nana ringing up one of the talkback stations or 702, one of those, and saying, I'm not afraid of going to London with my grandson. We survived the Blitz. And it was a, a rousing kind of moment there. No, it was a very interesting time because people reacted quite different differently to the uh to the atmosphere of fear around the evil terrorists i can remember people not going to the olympic games um because they were scared of that but you guys yeah no i was totally ignorant of uh <laughs> any danger there any fear and, and i guess my nana was as well it's a great thing about being young now, my father was actually born in England. Ah, so you have English ancestry. That's right, yeah. The my, motherland. The motherland, yeah. Um, both my parents have English heritage and my grandparents moved to Australia when they were middle-aged, in, in their 40s. And so there's this big... Uh, I do have a sense of heritage, of Britishness, when I was younger, my voice was often tinged with a British inflection. It still is to a degree at certain points. And I have family over there and I have a sense of connection to England and the sense that um, I have enough of, you know, those kind of familial connections that I could, if I ever wanted to go there, I could set up a life for myself there, just get a 
the at least a place to stay. Um, and did you hook up with any of your distant family? Yeah, we we mostly visited um, friends of my grandmother, but the the person with whom I stayed most of the time was my godfather, uh, Tom, who he's a real character, a very outgoing German man. And so we stayed with him and his wife and his two kids who were uh, around, I think around two and and just a one or like a real young baby at the time and they lived in Richmond so uh, we were there for just shy of a month so I got to spend a lot more time there and because I was older um, than when I'd last been there when I was four I took in a lot more and um, had a more mature eye for things and Nana and I, we'd go around sightseeing a lot of the time, just kind of going into different places. Like, And we had a tendency to always get fish and chips. And I remember there was a certain point when Nana became just really sick of fish and chips. And she announced that we were going to, we must change our diet, have something different, you know, tomorrow. I was going to ask you what you ate because it tends to be something that is fairly different when you go to other countries, the kind of food they eat. Yeah, well, the, so we, we went... Did you eat any black pudding? Uh, no. <laughs> so my my godfather's uh, wife, her name's Not, she's Thai. Um, so I ate, I ate Thai food and um, we went to a Thai restaurant and it was quite different to the Thai food that you get here. It was, it didn't have that kind of as much of that sweetness as like the Thai here it was, and it was more spicy. Um, and one of my favorite places where we went, because this is, we went to Devon uh, where my dad was born and we stayed with my, my grandparents, old neighbors and friends, Pat and Tom Radford. And I love the area of Devon. I love the, it's got this rich history with like, smugglers it's a it's a seaside town um and a wonderful atmosphere to it cold and foggy but with beautiful fresh air we we went in the summer and so it actually uh didn't rain at all like while we were there uh, i think it rained like once over the whole time so it was like unusually um sunny for for the united kingdom but but getting back to devon uh so there's this place there's this national park there uh called dartmoor and one of the things that's notable about dartmoor is that they have these wild ponies there supposedly they're wild but they appeared to be incredibly acclimated to tourists uh, so much so that I had um, an ice cream in a cone and one of these wild horses trotted up to me and just ate that ice cream, just scooped it right out of the cone and ate it from... I think they have a notorious sweet tooth, don't they, horses, with the sugar cubes and the apples? Right, right. Um, ice cream as well, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, this one liked it. I, mean, I think he, he was the same color as the ice cream scoop. Beautiful white horse. Um, but no, I had... Um, a terrific time in the area and I, I really bonded with uh, 
with my uncle's um, kids as well. Uh, they spoke Thai like around the house. And so this little boy, Bruce, he started calling me Pikau, which means big brother. And when That's I... very nice. Yeah. And he'd, he'd follow me around and he'd say, Pikau by Nai Nai, which means where are you going, big brother? Uh, yeah. So it was very sweet. So you just hang out with your relatives. You didn't sort of have a, a busy tourist itinerary of sightseeing and... No, no, we didn't plan it like that. Like, I think we we did go to the Tower of London, which is a historical site um, where, you know, supposedly there was all the beheadings and everything. And um, I believe they have some jewels up there too, don't they? Yeah, yeah. The, and they had like a lot of relics and things to look at mm. in, in cases. Um, we were going to check out the London Eye, but we didn't end up doing it. And we were going to go on like a ghost walk, but we didn't end up doing it. But we did wander around. I think Nana didn't, she was not the kind of person who really liked to go on tours and things like that. She liked to be the master of where she was going rather than being led around, uh, which is fine because we, we did see some cool places. We went to a place called Hampton Court, which is this um, historical site. And they have this amazing hedge maze. And we walked through the hedge maze and inside this maze they had like speakers rigged up and they were playing like weird sounds and sort of discordant kind of voices and stuff just to create like some kind of sense of like insanity i guess as you like spooky yeah walk through the maze um (laughs) and and you could see it really have an effect on people like you could you'd pass by people walking there that looked like they'd been become turned into a ghost or something they just had this like vacant look in their eyes this like confusion um so I, I really liked that. Um, but you didn't see any ghosts. I, I didn't see any, um, but I guess I wasn't I wasn't really looking for them either. Um, I reckon there'd be a lot there. Oh, absolutely. Hanging yeah. around those castles. <laughs> oh, most definitely. Um, yeah, no, London has such like a... Well, England has a really... Um, rich history i mean everywhere does but it's it's known for specters and hauntings and things like that they uh did you ever watch any of those like ghost hunter shows and stuff from england like back in the 80s and that no i've seen some australian ones yeah yeah um because that was a quite a popular thing um i suppose british people in a way like in the victorian and the edwardian era they kind of um popularized the ghost story as a genre. Um, and so that was actually something I was really into at the time. I had the book of like great English ghost stories and, uh, Nana used to read them to me. Um, but no, we, we had, um, we really enjoyed ourselves and I got along with, yeah, with everyone that we stayed with. I remember there was a point where my Nana had a fall, and um, she hurt herself quite a bit, actually, and we got helped by this uh, New Zealand uh, couple, these these two women, and uh, we went into the pub, and she got looked after, got an ice pack and everything, and everyone was, yeah, was very friendly, so we had a good experience with it. I know that there's a lot of bad press about London these days turning into a crime-ridden police state, but um, I can speak to the fact that 17 years ago, uh, it was, it felt like a, a really good place to be. 
Sounds like a great experience. Yeah, you no, had there. It was, and it was nice to be somewhere with no parents as well, because you know how grandmas can be indulgent. Yeah, it's different hanging out with the grandparents. I did a lot of hanging out with my grandparents when I was a little kid. I used to go uh, on school holidays. I'd go and stay with my grandparents. No, I love it. I always felt like I'd sleep so well when I was there at my grandparents' place. Now we're going to have a music break. and What you got? This is a song called Travelin' Shoes, performed by Fred Neal. Time. I keep complaining too much about their troubled minds. You know, so many people just each and to speak. You know, a very few practicing the things they're preaching now. Traveling shoes, traveling shoes. Can't seem to lose these wheels. Some people think they know me quite well While there's some folks are thinking my soul's going to hell on the right Well, there's them that do, you know there's some that don't There's a few left that will, you know there's some that won't now Traveling shoes, traveling shoes So Fred Neal, um, who was born Frederick Ralph Morlock Jr. in uh, 1916 in Cleveland, Ohio, he, he's he's no longer with us. He died in 2001 at the age of 65. But he's one of those artists who he did record albums, but he was much more known for other people's recordings of stuff that he wrote. Uh, most famously, the song "Everybody's Talking" by Harry Nielsen, which was the theme song to Midnight Cowboy. So that was a real iconic piece of music there. But he also wrote hits for uh, Buddy Holly, Roy Orbison. So really accomplished guy. Um, I would recommend checking out the album that this came from, 1965's Bleaker and McDougal. Uh, Also, his collaboration with another folk singer, Vince Martin, the 1964 record tear down the walls terrific stuff fred neal 
Now, John, you have some significant travel stories for us. Well, I've done a lot of traveling, um, but most of it's been around Australia. I have been overseas a few times, as I've, I've mentioned before, and, and one of the first times I went over, I had a mate who was teaching English overseas. I'm not sure if it's still the same now, but a lot of people venture overseas, mm. and one of the things they can always do is teach English. That's a job that you can take around the world, isn't it? Even if you're not a teacher here, as long as you have a degree, you can basically go anywhere, well, almost, to a lot of places anyway. Mm. He was in Japan, and he uh, was working for a language school there, and he'd been there for a while, I think a year or so, and he said, why don't you come over? And I'd never really thought, I'd been to Bali before, um, surfing, and I'd never really thought of going to Japan, but, you know, the opportunity is there, so off I went. And I um, went, I had a pit stop on the way, was it on the way? No, it was actually on the way home. I stopped in um, Bangkok, mm. which is the first time I'd been, went to Thailand. And that was quite interesting because I, I got to compare those two places. They're not actually that far apart, but very different in so many, so many ways. One of the things I remember about Japan the most is how clean and orderly it was. Right. Culturally, everybody's very well behaved, very polite. Mm. In fact, so the first thing I noticed was the taxi. Um, at the airport, yeah. I got in a taxi and... Now, it was a little bit di more difficult in Japan because not everyone speaks English there. Like in um, Bali, there were a lot of people that could speak English. Right. But in Japan, a lot less people. Um, and I don't think the taxi driver... Uh, spoke had very very much English, but I had an address written down. But I remember the cab being absolutely immaculate. It had little lace doilies on all of the seats. Mm, that's the, so cool. The driver had white gloves on and like a full on like uniform, and um, it was a very nice clean cab. <laughs> And the rest of the country was <laughs> pretty much the same. Yeah, it was. Um, they're just a very polite, mm. orderly. People, I remember um, being told that it was incredibly safe there to walk around. I, I went to Osaka, which is what, mm. which is a pretty big, uh, major city, and I was staying in the suburbs. And uh, and this the, was yeah, this was in the late nineties, wasn't it? Yeah, it was actually in um, the early nineties. Straight away, I noticed that they had uh, vending machines yeah. everywhere that that talked. Wow. And you could buy everything in this in a, vending in machine. Vending machine, yeah. Yeah, like, everything. Yeah, here it's just like Coke and chips, right? Mm. But over there... So this is 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And a much more sophisticated, like... Very technologically yeah. sophisticated. I could not negotiate the transport system on my own because of the language problem, but um, there were robot machines mm. selling tickets everywhere at all the wow. train stations so it was all automated yeah. in the early 90s over there wow um yeah they they had robots everywhere i mean the lifts talk the vending machines spoke the it's <laughs> amazing yeah Did i you was going on a bullet train but it was like going in being in um blade runner or something yeah, yeah, you know yeah. it's got all of that mm. uh, that Japanese sort of culture in That's Blade, right. Blade Runner it was it about, does, yeah. it, and you know Blade Runner hadn't been out that, that long at that stage mm. you know, yeah did they have like big billboards that would like change huge stuff, billboards like, and it had of like Charlie Sheen and Sylvester Stallone selling like holding a huge T-bone steak Right. Or, so the movie stars. Yeah, they, the movie stars. And, and I remember um, reading up about it thinking, I can't believe these, like, selling s these weird brands of cigarettes. And what yeah. I found out was they, the stars love these kind of 
um, of course work in Japan because it never no one in the rest of the world ever sees that, that they're selling these cigarettes or yeah. these, these meat products and yeah. they get very well rewarded mm. for it yeah because yeah, it's, it's funny they'll have like these other kind of forms of fandom in different parts of the world and it was a really bizarre m- mixture of American and Japanese culture. Right. Um, well, they love American stuff, don't they? Well, I guess since the Second World War, since the occupation after the war, and the sort of re total reorganisation of their of their culture and their government, um, a huge amount of American culture was sort of absorbed into Japan, but also into America as well. Yeah, like I mean, Godzilla. Judo, karate, you know, all those things became really huge in America after the Second World War. Yeah, and the cuisine as well. The karate kid, sushi. yeah. Yep, absolutely. Food. Yeah. Um, food, there's another thing. There were, <laughs> there were these, everywhere you went, even in the suburbs, so you had talking vending machines, but you also had these little sushi train. They were everywhere, these little, they were like corner stores, and you'd look in and it'd be the little train with the, bowls moving around on it all over the place which was i'd never seen one of them before at that point yeah Yeah. and so we get this kind of tech or these kind of things like much later and their standard of living i think was the highest in the world back at that stage Mm. whether or not they still have a very high standard of living i think yeah Um, well things are still meant to be quite clean there like public bathrooms and stuff i can't imagine that's ever going to change that's just the way they are they They keep everything yeah i mean the public bathrooms are immaculate which is a bit different to to our australian actually they've got a bit better actually in my lifetime uh, the if you can find one in Australia, a garbage bin or a bathroom. But the the other thing I I remember that struck me was when I went to the railway stations. You saw, I was so used to seeing homeless people in Australia hanging around the stations yeah. and taking refuge at night time and sort of you know, I could I didn't see very many uh, homeless people at all in Osaka. But the ones I did find were incredibly organised. They they would build themselves these little hotels out of cardboard each night in the in a, a certain part of the train station. And these were the, these were the only kind of destitute sort of poor people that I saw the whole time I was mm. there. And I wondered where, what the society and the government did with... Uh, where did they go? Where did they go? I never found out. Uh, but I found a few who were very well organised. So you spent a lot of time just walking around on your own, like... A lot of my time on my own, um, my friend Mark was working, so I had the days to myself, and he took me out to places yeah. at night, and I met some of his friends and went to some really interesting bars and dance, crazy dance places. Mm. and. Uh, but in the daytime, I just wandered around with my camera. Um, couldn't really talk to anybody, but, you know, I'm not really... It wasn't a shopping... Um, holiday once again so i just uh took lots of pictures mm. do you still have those i do unfortunately <laughs> unfortunately i had a i bought this u-boot camera and it was uh what was it it was one with a tape in it it was vhsc or something like that with a tiny little one of these formats that become obsolete disappear i think i still have the tapes but i have nothing to play them in we've got to get a wait oh right yeah i see what you're saying <laughs> Yeah. It's possible. It's not like VHS. No, I'd have to get an adapter cartridge and put that into a VHS. And then I could, maybe, but VHS-C was sort of like super VHS, so I don't even know if it would play on a normal. We should look into this. 
Yeah, so mainly me- I got memories from there. Yeah. And then the juxtaposition mm. from um, Osaka to Bangkok. Right. And that was uh, crazy. <laughs> well, how long was the space between that? Well, I basically got on a plane on the way home and I stopped at um, Bangkok. Got straight off, there. Mm, straight to Bangkok and uh, landed, had no nothing booked no accommodation no, nothing and i can remember landing at the the airport and, and bangkok was just madness and there were like touts running everywhere and and i'd read what's the, a tout um touts are people that uh work for businesses right. and uh backpackers and hotel hotels mainly mm. and they come and try and get people to come back to their yeah yeah to their place but you've got all kinds of scammers um I didn't come across any scammers in Japan at all, <laughs> um, but in Bangkok, uh, a totally different story. And as soon as you get off the plane, you're basically besieged by people wanting to, purporting to be all kinds of things, to take you to hotels, yeah. to people pretending to be taxi drivers That's that right. aren't, yeah, yeah. and you can get into a bit of trouble if you go with the wrong person. They have that kind of thing in Indonesia as well. Um, but this sounds like even more intense. Yeah, it was um, like, I think I talked about that in Bali, how yeah, it kind of yeah. freaked me out a bit because I didn't know how much to pay for anything. Mm. Well, it was the same in Bangkok, um, trying to deal with the taxis. <laughs> First of all, I had to find a guy that was actually a taxi driver. I don't know whether he... I got into town anyway, <laughs> and it was... Oh, I can just remember the the traffic was... I'd never seen anything like it. It was this constant arterial flow of motorbikes and cars that seemed to be completely disorganized to me, but all seemed somehow not to smash into each other. They were like, when you know those, um, when you see film of, yeah. of blood cells being pushed right. through arteries, this is what it reminded me of. The, the roads, uh, it, the lights didn't seem to make any difference. People totally disregarded any kind of rules or regulations, mm. and everybody just went forward. Nobody yeah. seemed to ever look in their rear view vision mirror, and they just blew their horn constantly, like "Get out of the way! Here I come!" Yeah. Um. So a very different um uh car experience. So I guess the most interesting thing about going to those two places was that I went to somewhere where the people actually actually more affluent than in Australia. Mm. Um. Standard of living. Standard of living was yeah very high, and then because of my previous experience in Indonesia mm. and Bali, the people were just so very poor. You know, they had they had no infrastructure, and they they survived in almost nothing. And then Bangkok was sort of a bit more in the middle. Yeah, uh, Bangkok was. A, I didn't like the city at all. It was incredibly noisy and dirty and polluted. Mm. But um, this, there's a lot more opportunity there right, for people to to get a leg up. Yeah, so that was um, that was a great experience t- for me to see how different people live. Yeah, because in Australia it's pretty much the same mm. everywhere. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of the episode, and we'll be back in six weeks' time. Indeed, we will. We hope you've enjoyed our travel stories. We sure have enjoyed talking about them. Indeed. Sayonara. Bye bye. 
You're listening to People Powered Radio, proudly supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The Community Broadcasting Foundation resources community-owned and operated media stations just like this one that connect people and tell vital local stories so that we all enjoy a more vibrant, inclusive Australian culture and healthy democracy. Find out more about our work at cbf.com.au. Start to yearn 